This is the Off Mic Podcast, a radio show about radio life. Here's your host, Drew Dalby. Hi, it's Jeff Woods from the Legends of Classic Rock and a bunch of stations across Canada, including Q107 Toronto. You're just everywhere these days, it seems. You know what? We are almost coast to coast. Uh, Ironically, maybe that's not the correct word. Strangely, we're not on in Halifax anymore, and that was the station I started out with, Q104 Halifax, the rock of the Atlantic at one time. Well, we're going to get to the Legends of Classic Rock stuff, and of course we're going to get to Halifax as we go through, but I want to go right back to the very beginning with you. When did you first know that you wanted to be in radio? Drew, I was, uh, like a lot of kids, pondering what the heck next in and around grade 9, grade 10 high school. And I had no idea. And then I really, you know, was leaning towards uh, going to Ryerson and becoming a journalist. And the more I thought about that, uh, I thought, chances are I'll be writing for a newspaper. And chances are, <laughs> if I'm writing for a newspaper, I'm going to be writing about a lot of bad news. That's the nature of the beast, right? I didn't want to do that. I thought that would be depressing. So uh, I thought about what I spend most of my day doing, other than trying to avoid going to class. And that was listening to the radio. It seemed like the obvious fit to get into uh, to radio uh, via radio college. And where did you go to radio school? I went to Fanshawe. I applied to Humber and Fanshawe and Ryerson and Fanshawe just for many reasons, including the fact that it was in London, Ontario, which seemed to be a great place to be a student. It was the best fit for me, so I applied, got in, and did the two-year diploma course. Now, once you finished there, I saw in another interview you did, you said that you didn't want to send out tape to everybody like they tell you to do in radio school. You were very specific where, with where you sent your demos out to. True, you're right. You know, and, and I understood. I wasn't trying to be, you know, certainly disrespectful to the, to the process or to anyone that did send a billion tapes to a billion stations in multiple formats. But I really didn't want to have to settle in a format that I didn't really want to work in because, you know, you do your best work when you're passionate about it. And I was passionate about music from the 60s and 70s, largely. And so I sent 10 tapes to 10 rock stations from coast to coast. At the time, Rock 101 Vancouver, for example, and there was City in Winnipeg, and there was Kick in Calgary, and there was Q in Toronto, and there was Shome in Montreal, and there was uh, Q104 Halifax. So I did all those and then a few more. Do you ever wonder, because uh, two stations did end up getting a hold of you, now that you're this uh, you know, largely famous person in the industry, do you ever wonder if the other eight program directors kicked themselves a little bit? I bet they didn't, you know, because I didn't really become an entity on radio for many years to come. So uh, by the time they realized it, they'd probably forgotten they'd even seen my tape in the first place. <laughs> I thought it was interesting. You talked about London, Ontario being a great place to be a student. You obviously had some roots in Ontario. Uh, but you ended up going to Halifax because Toronto was a day late. Tell us that story. It was. You know, it's funny because uh, a couple of reasons I really feel it was a blessing. You know, things happen when they're supposed to. And I got a call from Bro Jake Edwards, who, you know, you probably know of. He became a famous morning man in multiple markets. And he's still on the air in, 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 in Vancouver doing sports radio. At the time, though, he was program director and morning show host, Q104, The Rock of the Atlantic. They've been on just a couple of years at that point. They really made waves, and, 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 and Jake was the man. He was truly the man. I saw his photo on the cover of Broadcaster Magazine. I think it was that spring. It had just come up, and I said, i got to work for this guy. There he was looking like Frank Zappa with his dark shades. <laughs> so I sent him a tape for sure, and sure enough, he was the first to call. Uh, he said, Jeff, uh, I want to offer you a show. Uh, it was a swing position, right? And a couple of weekend mornings, did some production. And I said, great. Uh, so he did. He offered me the job. He said, I'll give you $10,000 a year. Holy cow. I said, I'm in. <laughs> it was 1985. There were lots of people making ten k a year doing other things that weren't as fun as radio. So I thought, sure, I'll do it. And I accepted. I said, when do you need me? He said, how about next week? I said, I'll be there. Next day, phone rings. Gary Slate. Q107 Toronto. Remember, Slate Communications owned, uh, owned Q before they sold it and t- to finance uh, CFRB. So Gary said, ah, we've got a job for you, maybe. Uh, why don't you come see me? So I did go see him. Now, you know what it was? I'd already seen him. This is it. You know, memory fails. I'd already seen Gary, and he put me off. He said, yeah, maybe in a month, maybe in a month, maybe in a month, maybe in a month. The day after I accepted in Halifax, Gary called and offered me the job. Now, he's no dummy. He knew. He knew that Jake had offered me the job. He was toying with me to see if I would make good on the the Jake acceptance in Halifax, or I would be swayed to go over to him. Because you know what he said, Drew? He said, what is he paying you? (laughs) I said, 
I said, he's paying me just fine. I'm, I'm not worried about the money. I already made the commitment. I'm going to Halifax. Thanks so much for calling me back. Thanks for the offer. I'm sure one day we'll work again. And we did, eventually. It turned out all right in the end. It really did. Who wants to start at the top and fail? <laughs> then, then what? Then where do you go? <laughs> you see that a lot in radio students now, though. Everybody who, well, not everybody, because there are some rationally minded human beings that go to radio school, but a lot of the, the people that I talk to, I, you know, I ask, I said, well, where do you want to go? And if they're going to Nate in Edmonton, they go, oh, I want to work here in Edmonton. Or if they're going to State in Calgary or BCIT, they want to go to Vancouver, or, you know, all the, the, the different schools in Toronto. They, oh, yeah, I'd love to start in Toronto. And you bring up an interesting point because I think 90% of radio students now would have called Bro Jake back and said, I'm going to Toronto, man. Sorry. Yeah, maybe they would. I, I, was it really about keeping my word? In business, I've been extremely good at keeping my word. Not so much in personal relationships, but that's another story. Um, but in business, I mean, it, nothing's more important, the way I grew up anyway, than the roof over your head. <laughs> you got to keep paying for the roof over your head, and that means making the right decisions around business. And if you say you're going to take the job, you take the job. You're out in Halifax, you're doing the swing thing. How how did you find it? What was the difference between doing a show at Fanshawe and actually being on a real radio station? Man, it was vastly different. I mean, you get it's about comfort zone, isn't it? You spent two years in college, in between which I did summer staff, so I was on the air all summer doing middays and evenings, kind of back and forth. And I was super comfortable. I was the program director of the little uh, closed-circuit college station. I was on the air at the FM broadcast station, 6X. I was getting a ton of shifts. And after two years, I felt like I was a radio guy. First day on the air in Halifax in the real world, I had no clue what I was doing. Suddenly the records were spinning too fast. Suddenly I didn't know how to operate a board. Suddenly I was nervous. Suddenly everything seemed foreign. It was such a difficult, different world for a week or two. And then again, the comfort zone builds, and, it's, and eventually it felt like old hat. But in the beginning, man, because it was the real thing. It was something on the line. You were getting paid real money, sort of. That $10,000. <laughs> that ten k. My wife at the time made ten five. We had 25, 20 and 5 to, uh, to our names, but we had a car and we had an apartment. Those are the things that matter, really, at that age especially. Uh, did, you find, yeah. did you find the folks at Q really took you under their wing to help you learn the trade? They were amazing. You know, you had Bro Jake. You got, had a guy named Bob Powers, who I think still does some shifts down there. He was the music director. You had a guy named Doug Caldwell, who ended up becoming a music director and into the music industry. You had Rock and Ray, who was a great 6 o'clock rock report host. You had all these uh, guys, some of whom were veterans, some of whom weren't, but they were all very passionate about rock music. So if you showed your passion for that as well, you're on the team, you're in. There was tons of support. It was a real family spirit. I loved it. And as you progressed through there, uh, learning the trade and learning the craft, eventually you started to get the itch to go elsewhere. You know, it was almost two years, and I was ready to uh, get back to Ontario, family, friends. I was just kind of ready to get out of there. And uh, no offense to the listeners, the market, the people that I worked with, I just was ready for a change. You know, they say, oftentimes they say, a couple of years, give it two solid years, put everything you've got in it for two years. Maybe you're ready for a change then. I felt like perhaps I was. There wasn't an opening where I wanted to be. Q Toronto, Hits FM St. Catharines, somewhere. So um, I uh, I just moved back and I, and I did other things. I'm not too proud to say I went and did uh, some carpentry and loved it. And did that until the phone did ring. And then eventually, you know, within six months, Q called me. Bob Makowitz, Q in Toronto, called. And said, I've got swing in Toronto for you. Come in. Let's talk about it. He offered me the job on the spot. And, uh, and, and I took it. It was wonderful to be in Toronto, being on the radio at Q, where I could have been two years earlier, but I definitely wasn't ready. And to your question a minute ago about how did it feel, again, it's that comfort zone thing. I felt like a fish out of water for the first shift or two. Slowly you work your way back in and it starts to feel like home. Before we go to the to this station, I want to talk about how impressed I am that you were able to, you knew what you wanted. You wanted to go to Ontario and you literally walked away from a job without another one to go to. I, I did that once myself, obviously not leaving a, a, a major job like that. I was doing street team for about five years. I was not getting the breaks that I wanted to go on the air, so I decided that I was going to move out to BC in much the same way you were. I was going to go, and I would figure out the job thing when I got there. And right. that move 
was terrifying. It can be, you know. I'm, I'm a firm believer that things do happen, I mentioned, when they're supposed to. And if you're good, they'll happen, period. If you're not ready, you'll know. The phone won't ring. The thing is, somebody once said to me, because I've been in and out of radio three or four times. I've been in it now since 97, full time. But before that, I got in and out a few times and did different things. And a boss once said to me, a program director said, you can't keep leaving and coming back. And I said, you know what? I respect you. But on that point, I disagree with you. If I'm good and my skills match with the needs of the station, I probably can get back. Because these, these aren't like decisions I'm making. I'm not leaving because ah, I don't really like it anymore. I'm leaving strategically because I want to, A, do uh, uh, record retail. I opened a record store for a few years. The next time I left, I wanted to uh, get into the record label side of things. So I did that, you know, to round out my career. I wanted to come back to the radio to have something to talk about other than just being a guy that's been on the radio forever. Daunting a little bit, but it wasn't scary because I knew I could come back if I worked hard. Your next move was to the record store. I believe it was Discworks in Toronto, was it? Yeah, you know, I'd been on cue for six months in Toronto, uh, and, and I didn't see eye to eye with the general manager. And I've gotten along with most bosses, by the way. If it seems like I'm that guy that doesn't get along, I had, I had one guy say, you can't keep leaving, and I had another guy say, you sound too, too American. And can you imagine? Did he ever clarify what the hell that means? No, I think it might have been a bait and switch. He just didn't, for whatever reason, we didn't see eye to eye. He was a bit of a... I wouldn't say Nazi, because he's not obviously not uh, German, nor is he uh, of that persuasion in any other regard than maybe a little heavy-handed. In the context of what I'm talking about, he was just a bit of a bully. You sound too buddy American, or too effing American, as he put it. And I, and, I, and I disagreed with him, not to be combative, just to simply say, you know what, the guys at Chum FM sound pretty cohesive, homogenized. Chum FM was so consistent even then. All the announcers, to me, sounded kind of the same. Q was vastly different. It was personality radio. Mako didn't sound like Scruff. Scruff didn't sound like Derringer. Derringer didn't sound like Frost. They all sounded vastly different from one another. And here's me, again, different. And Christy Knight. And Shirley McQueen. And Jimmy James. Everyone sounded different from the next guy. Anyway, I think he just needed an excuse to get rid of me. He didn't fire me, though. I just thought, do I really want to work for a guy who doesn't like the way I sound? So I quit with a view to opening this record store, as you mentioned, Discworks in Toronto. Built it up from nothing and did it for three years and then sold it for, you know, hundred grand or so, which is good money in your early 20s. Did you find that you learned anything that you would use later when you got back into radio while you were working at Discworks? Well, I did. I mean, I got a greater knowledge of music, um, particularly because, you know, back then we were still spinning vinyl and I was a specialty star, so new and used and imports. I knew uh, a lot about records. <laughs> Uh, after three years, as you might imagine, and discs had come, uh, uh, you know, into being compact discs. And I just knew uh, about retail. I knew about business a little better. But more than anything, my knowledge of music increased during that time and kind of led me, I think, down the road as a precursor to uh, starting up a music-intensive show like Legends. Side note, does it make you happy to see that vinyl is making such a strong comeback? It truly does. You know, I sold in 91 when I sold my store. I sold all the stock, and I sold my entire personal collection, too, because I decided to travel around the world, and I thought, I don't really want to store vinyl in some locker. So I sold it all. And I didn't really regret it later, but I was thrilled about this resurgence of vinyl, so I got a turntable, started collecting again, and, uh, and I think it's, it's, it's so much fun. I mean, the biggest difference now is the price. We would sell, you know, the average, you know, a copy of Dark Side of the Moon or a copy in Through the Outdoor by Led Zeppelin. That was a $5 record, a $4.50 record, consistently from about 85, probably to about the year 2000. Now that's a 15 or $20 record. The run-of-the-mill records are 20 bucks now-ish, right? That's a little bit pricey. Especially when you're trying to build a collection up. It is. When you're trying, you know, those, those staples of your collection, there's about two or three hundred of them. And then you can get into the collectibles in any event. So be it. Is it at all possible for Jeff Woods to name the jewel of his record collection? <sighs> yeah, you know, uh, it's not that exciting. I still love some of the double albums I have, and they were just regular issue. You know, the White Album, Exile on Main Street, Quadrophenia. These are the records I love the most by these bands. I don't have to have a rare import um, white vinyl promo-only 
copy of a record for me, you know, to enjoy it thoroughly. Just the records I grew up with, and the White Album is chiefly among them. So you do the record store, you, you get rid of the record store, you said you did some traveling around the world. What brings you back to the industry, and where did you go? Well, I got back to Ontario, I, I believe it was uh, two days before Christmas, 1991. I'd blown all the money I'd, I'd, I'd <laughs> made off the record store. I had a really good South Pacific trip, let me tell you. It was supposed to be a year. It lasted about four months. So here I am back in Toronto with nothing, you know, in terms of uh, um, uh, possessions, uh, no job, and no relationship, not even a car. And I thought, what next? So I collected my demo tapes, and I sent them off to uh, Mix in Toronto. I don't know if I even bothered with Q at that point. Mix in Toronto, um, I didn't even do Hits FM, but... As it turns out, the program director at Mick, same company as Hits FM, sent him the tape, said, this sounds like a rock guy. Maybe you want to check him out. So the Hits FM PD at the time, the guy who launched that station, Eric Samuels, he called me. He had me in. I did some shifts. I did six, seven, eight, ten shifts on Hits in early 92. And I thought, well, when's he going to hire me? <laughs> you know, he seems to be liking what I'm doing. But I didn't say a word. I just kept doing the shifts, waiting for uh, you know, his reaction to what I was doing on the radio. And then we had a lunch. And he said, we've just acquired, we meaning Standard Broadcasting, goes back to Gary Slate now, right? Gary was the boss. Uh, we've just acquired stations in Alberta, Calgary and Edmonton, pick one. And I said, where are you going? Are you, are you going? He goes, yeah, I'm leaving Hits. And I'm going to go to Edmonton and launch a brand new rock station. I said, well, I want to go where you're going. Because I trusted him, right? He knew what he was doing. I could tell. So he, Eric Samuels, and myself, and Patrick Zulanoff, who was producing the morning show, Scruff's morning show, the four of us met in Edmonton, and we launched The Bear. And I have to thank you for that, because that ended up being my first job in the industry, was working at The Bear. <laughs> Isn't that great? You guys set the bar pretty damn high, just so you know. Well, we were lucky to be in that market. The market was, thank you, by the way, the market was ripe for a rock station that really played rock records with consistency and with passion. So, I mean, they scalped, as you probably know, Terry Evans from down the street at Ken 87. We got Steve Zimmerman. We got Sled Dog Michaels, Shane Michaels. They were all from down the street at K. And we had our own people from Ontario. And, you know, while the competition was playing Metallica into the Supremes, quite literally, I heard that mix one day, we were playing Led Zeppelin and ACDC and the Allman Brothers and Black Sabbath and Aerosmith, and it was a consistently good rock station, I think. What was the difference like doing radio, or was there a difference doing radio out in the prairies, out in Alberta, as compared to Halifax or Toronto or St. Catharines? I'll tell you the difference, and I think, it's the di I think it has more in common with Halifax or perhaps Winnipeg than it does Toronto or Vancouver. Given that the markets of, of Halifax and, and London and Edmonton at the time, there was a smaller city then, there was more passion among the audience. They were more impressed by radio than I felt they were in a Vancouver Radio seemed more top of mind, in my estimation, having met the listeners, having talked to them on the phone. Maybe it has more to do with the fact that there wasn't a real, true, solid rock station in the market yet or at the time. Maybe that's what their affinity was about. Like, wow, thank you. You guys are kind of what we were waiting for. Maybe it has to do with the size of the market somewhat, too. Whatever the case, the stars were aligned, and I thought Edmonton was the greatest place. Well, you know, if you've seen Hardcore Logo, Hugh Dillon <laughs> leads that band in Hardcore Logo and, and talks about different audiences and how in Toronto they don't really give a shit. You know, you're lucky if they'll clap. In Edmonton, they give it their all. It, 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 I think it translates to radio as well. At least it did then at the Bear. So you speak so highly of the Bear and, and of Edmonton. What was the reason that you eventually left? Well, you know, I started. To, I got hired to do middays. And then they and then they got Terry Evans from down the street, so I couldn't I couldn't argue that he was a better fit for middays. I got, I went back to swing, still happy to be there and been in radio a little bit, and I had a great time. So Terry got moved to drive, I got moved to middays, then Terry got moved to mornings, I got moved to drive. So within two and a half years, I was doing drive, and we were number one outside of country, and I was the music director. So I was having a great life, and I'd gotten you know uh, successive raises. I felt really great about being there. And then I get a phone call from my best friend, Patrick Zulanoff, who had left the bear to go work at Sony, the record label, Columbia and Epic, right? Part of the Sony umbrella. Patrick did Sony Calgary for about, I don't know, a year, two years while I was still at the bear. He said, I 
think I'm going to get a transfer to Vancouver because that's where he wanted to live, ultimately. And so he had an opening there. He goes, get your resume in. He goes, I highly recommend the move to the record industry. And this was 94, and the record industry was still in its heyday. And I thought, why not? And we talked a bit about compensation, and I thought, well, that'll be a step in the right direction. I mean, I'm doing okay compared to the ten grand I made back in Halifax, but tell me what you're making again. He did. I said, okay, I'll get my resume in yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> so I went through the interview process. I accepted the job, quite thankfully. I was thrilled to be in it. It was my first record company gig. I went to my boss, to Eric, who took me to Edmonton in the first place. I said, listen, love working with you. Loved my time here. I'm leaving. And that's, that was the day. He said, you can't keep leaving. <laughs> and I said, I respectfully disagree. So he asked me all these questions and gave me all these objections to why I shouldn't leave radio or why you know, I shouldn't take this job. And then finally, his last question, get this through. He said, what are they paying you? <laughs> it always seems to be that last question in these conversations. And I told him the number. And he came over, shook my head, and said, congratulations. <laughs> we can't fight with that. I almost doubled my salary overnight by going <laughs> this door to that door. So, yeah, it was hard to argue. Now you are a music lover in the record industry. You, know, you have access to the bands and you have first access to the new music. You're the one that they're looking to to go to radio and, and hype these new songs that are coming out. I have to imagine once you got into it, it felt like a real fit. It really felt great. Uh, and it was in Calgary. It was one of those things that's kind of nice to start in the middle-sized market, not in Toronto or New York or L.A. Calgary was pretty great. Got my feet real wet there. Really enjoyed it. Didn't get as many tours through that part of the country as a Toronto or Vancouver would, but it was enough for me. So touring artists would come through a lot of Canadians, some international acts. I would be the guy to take them around to their interviews, you know, set up their interviews, take them to their interviews take them to the radio stations, take them to the prints, take them to the television, go to the show, do the after show, do all that stuff. It was a wonderful place for a music lover. So you're in the record industry. Your boss has told you you got to quit quitting radio because you can't always just come back whenever you want. You prove them wrong once again, and you get back into the industry. What made you want to walk away and, and come back to radio? Well, here's the thing. So I'm, I'm, I'm in Calgary for a year doing Sony Music Canada as a promo marketing rep, enjoying it thoroughly. Get a call from head office at Sony. Can you transfer your butt to Toronto? Because the guy that was sort of my counterpart in Toronto was moving upstairs, so to speak, to be national. And he needed a Toronto rep to replace himself. I said, thank you so much for the offer. Thank you for the vote of confidence. I'm really liking it here in Alberta. I hadn't you know, lived in Calgary long, a year. Not even, I think it was six months into my time in Calgary. He had made the offer. I declined. I said, thanks for, you know, maybe at some point I'd be willing to move back east. But right now I'm really digging in here. Can I stay? He said, yeah. Six months later, another call. We really want you, you know, it was the big push. We need you back in Toronto. Can you do it? Would you do it? And I felt like it was one of those things where I needed to step up and, and you know, they may not call a third time. So I said, yeah. After a year in Calgary, I went to Toronto, did the same gig in Toronto, did that for about a year, loved it. But you know, there, there are some geniuses in every business, and there are some absolute tyrants and managers who don't have the right to call themselves managers. And the president at Sony at that time was one of those guys. And anyone listening that knows Sony from the middle of the 90s knows who I'm speaking of. He was a tyrant. He was a red-faced little bald man. And he was an absolute awful manager. And he's at the top of the company. I don't want to work in a company that's got that guy. So I had an opportunity to get back into radio. The great Pat Cardinal was programming Q in Toronto at this point. I had heard through the grapevine that Pat knew I was in town and wanted to use me on Q, maybe. I called him. He said, come on in, let's talk. I started doing um, weekend mor yeah, weekend morning, six to noons on Q in the summer of 90, I don't know, six or seven. And I was working at Sony Monday to Friday. I thought, I'll get my feet wet back at Q, see how it goes, see how the relationship goes with Pat, and we'll go from there. And just work seven days a week all summer. It was fun. It was tiring, but it was fun. I was young. <laughs> and then Pat offered me full time at Q. I could get away from the tyrant at Sony at the time. I could get back to Q. Why not? It was time for a move. Make the move when it feels right. So I did. What was the difference in the vibe between your two runs at Q the first time and now the second time leaving Sony? 
Now you had a collection of people at Q, in my estimation, that were really focused on the brand. They were really focused on winning. It was less about ego. There's always some ego, right? It was less about ego than it was when I was there in 88. It just seemed, and I was more confident. That's a key part, right? I wasn't going to be bullied. I wasn't going to be pushed around by people who had small man syndrome. I was a little better at what I was doing at this point. It was a combination of things. It wasn't a perfect world, but it was far better than it had ever been before for me to be at Q. So I've really been there ever since. That was uh, the fall of 1997. I love that you used the term that they wanted to win because I I find... And I don't know, maybe it's because, you know, the the corporations that are buying up all the stations and people are coming out of radio school and they're just being sort of thrown right into medium and bigger markets. But it seems to be missing in some people and in some buildings these days where it used to be all about that. It used to be we're going to be the best station in town. We're we're not just going to win our demographic. We're going to win every demographic. We're going to be so good that other stations are scrambling to keep up with what we're doing. Yeah, it's about passion, isn't it? It didn't matter the format. It was, we're on this team. We're a sports franchise, but we do radio. We're a franchise. We're a team. We want to win. We want to do the best we possibly can. And we want to get as many listeners as we possibly can, as many advertisers as we possibly can. And we want to win. I don't know if it's part and parcel with us being younger and full of piss and vinegar, or as opposed to some people as they grow older, and it's a job, it's a means to an end. I don't know. I never lost the passion that is to want to win. And the thing, the difference between Q and the 80s, at least when I was there, I'm not painting with a big bad brush that paints it all the same color. What I'm saying, when I was there in 88, it was more about ego. It was like, oh, we're already on top. It was a lot of bravado. At this point in the evolution of Q, it was 97, and and, and while they were strong, they felt like, we can do better, we can win. And, And Pat Cardinal was all about that. He's like, how do we go and get it all? How do we win? What's the team we need to assemble to make it work? I like that attitude. And it doesn't hurt that he thinks that you're part of what he needs to win. Yeah, you know what? He, he, I was, uh, I think I started as assistant program director to him. And within a couple of months, I became music director. And I got to be on the radio. So I felt great being chosen as a right-hand man as a guy that had been out of the business for a couple of years. Now, you got to be the music director. To you, is music director one of the, the best jobs that you can have in the building? To have the full library in front of you and to be able to say this goes this doesn't this is what we need to be playing more of this is not good i thought it was a great position to have i did it off and on at many stations over the years and uh, and i loved it and i think it was really the proper precursor to being a program director i think a great program director has been a music director and and that's the route i took anyway and i learned the ins and outs and it's also a great way to meet the record labels get to know the artists get access to the artists for promotions and for interviews. So, you know, I was on the air and I was doing music. So it, it allowed me the opportunity to uh, probably access artists I may not otherwise have accessed had I not been the music director. And that led eventually to becoming the host of the Legends series. And that's where I want to go next. You are known by broadcasters and listeners across this country, like you said, almost coast to coast at this point because of Legends of Classic Rock, as well as your your local shows in the different markets you've been in. Where did the idea for Legends come from? It came uh, from the smoking room back when radio stations had those. I don't condone smoking, but it sure was fun when we didn't have to go outside, those of us who smoke occasionally. <laughs> uh, Stu Myers was the program director after Pat Cardinal at Q107. Stu would come from the edge. Stu is a brilliant, I think he's the most brilliant radio programming mind in the country, period. And I was fortunate enough to be, you know, his assistant. And Stu one day said to me, oh, Jeff, because he, he, he didn't waste any words ever personally or professionally. So Stu's saying something, it's probably important uh, as it relates to work. <laughs> so he said, why don't you do a show like Alan Cross's Ongoing History of New Rock, Ongoing History of New Music, but do it for, you know, 60s and 70s music. And he goes, I can imagine the word legends in the title of the show. Give it some thought, let me know. A week later, we were on the air with Legends of Classic Rock. You in Toronto, right? And then we expanded out to multiple affiliates. What was that process like, finding out that this show that you were putting your blood, sweat, and tears into to try and build up as a local program, as a local feature for Q, all of a sudden is big enough and good enough that they want to take it elsewhere? Well, it 
was a thrill for me. Um, I was doing some other syndicated stuff. I mean, the Q and at the time, uh, the Rock Radio Network, as it was called, and morphed into many different things since then. But essentially the same, a great big syndicator that's serving programming to multiple stations in the country and sometimes outside of the country. We'd had world album premiere that we were doing. They had carried Rockline from the U.S. There were other shows they carried over the years that were part of, you know, under this umbrella that was fairly consistently great content. Mine was just another show that was aspiring to be great, too. It took a while. The opportunity to do it as the host and the creator and the writer and the co-producer was an absolute privilege for me. Because let's face it, these things take time to uh, gestate, <laughs> to grow, to become something of an entity. And uh, it did grow over the years. I, I've done 465 shows, I think, as of this week. And I would say that about 187, because I was just reviewing it the other day, I started getting okay at it. <laughs> That's, that was the jump-off point there. It feels like it. I did a show with a co-writer, a good friend of mine, Andy Burns. Uh, we called it Page versus Plant. And I, I think it started to really click around show number 187. And it's been clicking ever since, thankfully. Are there any shows that do stand out, maybe 187 being one of them, and afterwards that, that stand out as your favorite or interviews that you look back on fondly? All my favorite shows end up being those ones where I get access to an artist probably has a new record coming out. And if not a new record, then a retrospective. I think back to interviewing Angus Young for the Bonfire Box, celebrating the life and the music of his good friend Bon Scott. I think back to doing shows around that. Legends wasn't even on the air then, but we were doing specials that sounded like Legends would. Those are the best. You get access to the artist. You get to ask them questions that hopefully no one's ever asked them before. You get to share their thoughts and this music, oftentimes that hasn't been you know, released to the public until right now. That's a thrill for me, to expose an artist for what he has to say and for what he has to, to play, and, uh, and to be the host of that. It's, it's, it's an absolute thrill for me. So usually, yeah, interview programs largely, or programs that the audience has gotten involved in. I'm always on Facebook or Twitter saying, what do you think about this theme? Give me your thoughts. Just the other day I did, uh, I'm going to do first cuts from first sides of first albums. And within 20 minutes, we had like 150 suggestions from the audience on Facebook. To me, that's a lot of fun. Makes the job easier, too. It does. Some people say, hey, we've done your work for you. I say, well, you know, I could have done the work, but I was really... Two things. One, you want to know things that you wouldn't have otherwise considered. Two, you want people to confirm that what you did consider has validity. So it kind of covers two bases. Have you had to work at your interviewing skills? Because I, I find, and, and I used to work at a station that ran Legends of Classic Rock, and people, because everybody thinks that you work at each individual station and you come in and you do the show live, and listeners and other broadcasters have told me that they think that you are one of the best interviewers in the country, in radio right now. Is it something that's come easy to you? Is it something you've had to work at? I just got a little chill up my spine, so I start by saying thank you. Because it's a work in progress. This whole, this, I think anything that any of us do is a work in progress. And when you start thinking you've figured it out, you're doomed. So I'm getting better, and thank you. But yeah, years ago, it was all nerves and bad questions. But then when I say bad questions, too long, um, answers that you, or questions that you can say yes or no to. You know, there's, there's some basics when you come up with a question for an interview. I think at the end of the day, though, there's a couple things that I, I want to consider. If someone says, how do you do a good interview? Number one, you start by saying hello. Some interviewers want to read for 90 seconds about the history of the artist they're about to interview. The artist doesn't need to know that. And you know what? The people listening probably know who Mick Jagger is. I don't need to give an expose on Mick Jagger. So I'd rather start by saying hello. It's great to see you. Thanks for coming. I really like the new record. <laughs> Must be a thrill to have it out next Tuesday. A conversation like you and I would have right now, you know, on your show. A conversation like you would have with a good friend over a dinner table or over a coffee table. I think that I'm not out to prove anything. I'm out to expose the project you've just come up with. I'm out to get you to tell some stories about yesterday. Get your feelings about what you're doing right now. And have a little bit of fun. And the best questions are really reactions to what the artist just said, other than the paper that you wrote them down on. I'm not committed to what I've written down. I usually have 20 or 30 questions ready. 
in case they're not particularly talkative. But the best questions invariably come from the conversation that you're having in the moment. That's something I had to learn along the way, too, because I used to be one of those guys where I would come in and I had, it was basically a script of how the interview was going to go, and I was guilty of being that guy that would rattle off 90 seconds of Priya. Yeah, today in the studio, we've got the guy, he's done this, he's done this. And and I always thought it's good because you're you're showing that you know who they are and you're buttering them up and they're going to be happy. And then you look across the desk as you're you're doing this and they're just like, "Get on with it for Christ's sake." And then you go Surely. into your you go into your script and they they, <laughs> they go off script and you're not ready for it. So it, it is a, a process like you say, you, know, you try to get better all the time, but you you almost have to learn by making those mistakes. I think so. And I always say, find the person that you think is really great at it. And back in the day, and, and still to this day, uh, Charlie Rose, who can interview anybody from the president of a country to, uh, to an actor, to a musician, to a sports star. Charlie Rose on PBS, right? And I guess uh, also uh, on 60 Minutes sometimes, too. Here's a guy, the preparation for the interview has been his whole life and his understanding of who he's talking to. First and foremost, and then it's probably another six hours or eight hours of reading um, in real time currently what's going on with that artist or that person he's about to interview. But there's no there's no substitute for just sitting down, having an understanding of somebody, and talking to them like you would to anyone, with respect, uh, with care, with a degree of admiration, or you shouldn't be sitting there in the first place. Where I come from, I'm not there to challenge them or critique them. I'm there to get them to share their thoughts. Now, I don't want to force you to throw anybody under the bus or anything, but I have to ask, has there ever been a band or a guest that you've interviewed for either your local shows or legends that you've walked away kind of disappointed with how it went? You know, any disappointments I've had were largely attributed to my own insecurities or lack of preparation. It happens infrequently, but it happens to all of us, right? There's been the odd interview that didn't go as well as it should because the artist had insecurities or was having a bad day. I would say that if I do 20 interviews, one feels that way. And that's more in the past than it is now. They all seem to go really well now. Oftentimes, when the interview didn't go that well, not shockingly, you don't hear from that artist again. They have other things that are going on in their career that are running parallel to that bad interview. I won't name names because it's not fair. And that's totally fair to, to not name names. Like I said, I don't want to make you throw anyone under the bus, but I feel like... <laughs> <laughs> for for me and for people who are getting into the industry, to know that you occasionally have a bad interview, maybe it's not right, but it kind of makes me feel better. <laughs> I'm glad to be of assistance. <laughs> the funny thing, Drew, though, about a bad interview is sometimes when I think it didn't go well, it's because I'm not listening to what's happening in the moment. I play back the tape, I build it into a special, and I'm like, that was pretty good. I mean, that went well. I got content. A great interview is one that present a lot of content to share with the audience after the fact in between songs and invariably they all end up turning out better than i thought in the moment i guess you're always just striving to be that much better now i feel like we we've talked about legends we should probably mention you did make it back to calgary for a brief period of time on the air at the queue out there it was the strangest thing because uh, I, I became an independent contractor for years which means essentially i worked from my home studio building legends i did a beatles series for a while did all kinds of independent stuff and then I got a phone call out of the blue saying, would you come do a live show in Calgary? Because um, Q107 West, Q107 Calgary, opened up shop seven or eight years ago, nine years ago. And uh, like a lot of sectors in business, Alberta has a hard time attracting so-called talent. So they were looking outside their borders, called me. I said, make me an offer I can't refuse. They did. I went and did drive afternoons for two years and quite enjoyed it because I hadn't done live radio consistently on a daily basis for many years. I was always the syndicated guy, right? I hadn't exercised that muscle in years. I thought, I'd like to be good at that. If not again, then <laughs> for the first time. So I did it and I really enjoyed it. The spontaneity of live radio, uh, the ability to put callers on in real time. I loved it and I had a really good time doing it. And then my job uh, changed yet again because they wanted me to do more and more nationally syndicated stuff, which is what I'm doing now. I will say, and, and this story might be funny to you, but uh, when we were living in Alberta, my wife was on a trip down to Calgary. She was floating through the dial. She's always been a big fan of Legends. Uh, she didn't know that you were on cue out in Calgary. And she said that the weirdest thing that she's ever heard on the radio, and that includes all of my awful shows, the weirdest thing she's ever heard on the radio was Jeff Woods doing the weather. 
Yeah, well, hey, people need to know if it's going to snow. <laughs> Especially in Calgary. <laughs> right. So what comes next? You say you're back to doing the, the nationally syndicated stuff. Obviously, Legends is still pushing forward. I saw you just had a, a big interview with ACDC for their new Rock or Bust album. How did that go? It went really well. It was my third or fourth time talking to Angus and second time talking to Brian. I love those guys, and they're consistently great. They deliver the goods every time. So I flew to New York, talked to them, brought the interview back, built it into a nice hour-long Legends episode. Uh, it was a great month, actually. I had ACDC, had Neil Peart of Rush again, and had uh, David Gilmore and Nick Mason from Pink Floyd for their what's probably going to be final album. So big month of interviews. Legends of Classic Rock on the air, 15 stations in Canada. The great news is, and I can't share much now because I don't have a distinct launch date, but it's called a Legends of Classic Rock Flink. F-L-I-N-K. Flink. And what a flink is, it's something for the totally obsessed, the super fan. So if you're a super fan of music from the 60s and 70s, as the case may be, you get a Legends Flink. If you're a super fan of alternative music, so to, so to speak, you get the ongoing history flink. If you're a country freak, you get a country flink. <laughs> okay? It's, it's, it's going to be web-based. Imagine the most gorgeous coffee table book you've ever seen online. That's what this is. I will give you personally the heads up on when it's going to launch and give you access to it so you can share it with your audience. Very cool. We'll make sure to share it on Facebook and Twitter and on this show. Uh, yeah, really looking forward to that. Now, now you've got me all intrigued. <laughs> I'm excited about this. We're looking at it not as a Canadian market, as a global market. Anyone in the world will have access to it. I will tell you this, it's subscription-based, but it's very cost-effective. It's $5 a month for access. It's, it's like getting Legends online. There'll be audio, there'll be video, there'll be links, there'll be, uh, there'll be things that you can't normally get just from the radio. It's an extension of the Legends brand. It's not meant to replace it. It's meant to overlap and augment it. And, and what I love the most is we have licensing deals with the people who provide some of the most beautiful photos of the favorite artists in your life. So you get a real good um, uh, selection of photos from which to, to view. So like I said, like a coffee table book of high quality. And then the stories behind the stories. So not only will there be chunks of the Legends show online, I'll be producing new video and audio content to, uh, to surround that. You know, it's interesting. Uh, towards the beginning of the interview, you talked about, you know, constantly challenging yourself and trying new things, you know, getting in and out of radio to go do different things. And now here you are at the end of the interview and you seem to have done it again. And you're, you're challenging yourself and going in a new avenue. It's very respectable. But I guess this begs the question, does this mean we're a couple of years away from you getting back into radio again? Well, I feel like I'm in radio. I don't think I want a regular uh, daily show, you know, two to six. That includes doing the weather. <laughs> so I'm, I mean, still in radio. I don't really want my own daily shift. Too much of a good thing is sometimes too much of a good thing. That's fair. What advice would you have with your wealth of knowledge through the industry for someone who's just starting out, someone who's just going to Fanshawe or Nate or Sate or BCIT or any of these schools across the country? I always love that question because people have been saying since the beginning of time that the industry is shrinking and there's no jobs. Well, there's some jobs. I think if you're really passionate about something, you go for it. But you don't look at radio as being an employee at a radio station. You look at it as being an employee, being a person who's passionate about whatever it is you're passionate about, being great at it, whether it's on the radio, whether it's on video, whether it's online, no matter what it is, whether it's talking to a guy on the street, a stranger, be passionate about it, get better at it, do it. If you happen to be able to get employed doing it, great. I mean, that's the goal. We need a gig. There's still some jobs. Just get great at it. Get, get as great as you can at it. Never stop learning. Never stop trying. Never think you've arrived. If you ever think you've arrived, you're doomed, as I said earlier. Go for it. But don't be afraid to sidestep that uh, plan if the timing isn't right or if something doesn't feel right. There's other things you can do. You can come back to it. That's my advice. And the other thing that you prompted me to think about was the old, and I used to say it all the time. It sounds a bit cheesy, maybe. You got to move sometimes to improve. What's wrong with moving to a different city? Maybe there's more opportunities. You don't have to stay forever. It's a big country. It's a big continent. It's a big world. 
being so stuck on having to stay in your hometown because your mom lives down the street, your mom will understand, or your dad or your brother or your girlfriend or your wife or your husband, do what you need to do to make, you know, to make it in this industry you've chosen to be in. It's not going to come easy. Put in the time. Do the work. Don't be focused on the money right away. Just do the work. The money will come. One of the questions I like to ask near the end of every uh, episode, because uh, radio people don't ever really stop listening to radio. They generally know, at least in the market they're living in, some of the names that are on the air right now. Is there anybody on the air or a couple people that you think just really are talented, somebody that you enjoy listening to? I've always really enjoyed listening to John Derringer, particularly when John Derringer, the morning host at Q107, opens up with information that you can't even believe he has managed to retain. Subjects that aren't obvious. I mean, he can talk about Leonard Skinner to Led Zeppelin until the cows come on better than most people. And not even doing research because he's got this steel trap of a, of a, of a mind where he retains information uh, cleverly and, and, and perpetually. But then John will talk about serial killers or the mafia or golf or, you know, any number of subjects that are outside the obvious. That blows my mind. Um, John's, a, John's a, a real good one. And then I love listening to a guy like uh, Fearless Fred doing Mornings on the Edge because I think he's just a sincerely nice guy, kind of funny, kind of nerdy, into music. I just like to listen. I just like when you feel good listening, that's a good listen. When you feel like you're being talked down to, not a good listen. Although Fred <laughs> will do that from time to time. Uh, maybe not to me. Maybe to somebody. <laughs> I'm excited for this part. I, I do want to thank you again for coming on the show because it has been uh, an awesome hour. I know you told me when we started we had half an hour, so I'm sorry for keeping you late. But the end of the show is always what I call the spin of the week. It's a song chosen by the guest, and I, I just I don't even know what I would expect from Jeff Woods of the Legends of Classic Rock to choose with the entire wealth of music that you've dealt with in your career. But if there was oh, one boy. song, if I can get you to channel your old daily radio roots and introduce a song in that Jeff Woods style to wrap the show. Oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. <laughs> Let me think for just a second. Let me pause. There's a song that came out originally in the 50s. Uh, a writer named James Shelton did it. And it's been revived many times. But there's two versions I've been listening to all, all week. And one is from the late Jeff Buckley. The song is Lilac Wine. It's not a heavy rock song. It's just a great song. Jeff Beck has done it. Miley Cyrus has done it. We're not going to hold that against it. Eartha Kitt did it. That's a good thing. But the two versions I like of Lilac Wine the most are Jeff Buckley and Nina Simone. Completely different takes on a classic song. Uh, it's just one of those songs that, that grabs me. Again, not a big rock song, but a really emotive song of great depth. So out of those two versions, which one do you want us to go with? Oh, my gosh. You better <laughs> do the Buckley one. You better do the Buckley one to stay within the rock vein. But once you hear that and you're at home, find the Nina Simone track. God, I love her. The depth and the understanding and the life experience that she brings to a song is second to none. But let's start with Jeff Buckley and Lilac Wine. I lost myself on a cool, damp night. I gave myself in that misty light. Was hypnotized by a strange delight. Under a lilac tree. From the lilac tree Put my heart in its recipe Makes me see what I want to see And be what I want to be When I think more than I want to think I do things I never should do I drink much more than I ought to drink Because it brings me back you Sweet 
listening to the off mic podcast follow the show online at off mic podcast on twitter or like the show on facebook if there's a guest you'd like to hear on the show email off mic podcast at gmail.com the off mic podcast is a part of the dolby radio network 